Welcome in to another edition of Home Field Advantage. My name is Will Highland, and today is May 31st, 2021. I hope you are all enjoying the long weekend and remembering why we have this Memorial Day off. Certainly thankful for our heroes in uniform who have uh, given the ultimate sacrifice to make this day possible. Definitely want to lead off the show giving uh, that message again, even though I know I, I know I said, I said so at the end of the last episode, uh, certainly something to not be forgotten, um, on this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, now the main thing we'll be talking about today, or actually the only thing we'll be talking about today is I will have a sit down interview with Gershon Rabinowitz from the Puck Authority. He covers the NHL and the New York Islanders for the Puck Authority, which is a great hockey website and very insightful, and I have even uh, dabbled with it as well. So definitely want you to check out the Puck Authority um, as well as we, after, right, actually right after you finish listening, uh, you should go check out the Puck Authority as we head into uh, the remainder of the NHL playoffs. So most of the episode will be talking Bruins Islanders with Gershon. It was a fun time. Uh, we were only shooting to talk for 30 minutes, but it actually ended up being closer to 45. So it was a great lengthy interview where we will cover all aspects of the series and I hope you will enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my sit down with Gershon Rabinowitz. All right. So as I mentioned earlier in the intro, I am joined by Gershon Rabinowitz from the Puck Authority. He is a Brooklyn, New York native, and he is a contributor there. Gershon, how are you this afternoon? Thanks for having me on, Will. I'm really excited watching these NHL playoffs. I mean, every single game coming down to the wire, one-goal games or an overtime game, it's just really been fascinating to watch so far. I totally agree. I totally agree uh, myself. It's been a great start to the NHL uh, playoffs. And really what we're here to talk about, again, as I mentioned in the outro, excuse me, in the intro, is uh, the Bruins Islanders series. Uh, And you being a New York native and covering uh, the NHL for the Puck Authority and, you know, myself being a New England native and co- have covered the Bruins before for various outlets. I thought this would be a great uh, start to this series, even though we've had one game already. Um, so, without you know, without further ado, Gersh, I'm just going to ask real quick: um, What were your uh, overall thoughts on how Game One unfolded at the Garden on Saturday night? Yeah, Game One. It seemed like the Bruins they got off to a bit of a slow start. They were, they were leading in the shot hole early. Islanders getting an early goal, and then all of a sudden, you know, both teams trade trading opportunities, and then David Pasternak just going off. I mean, last couple of games in the first round, he got his first two goals, and then it seemed like he was picked up where he left off there. Tuukka Rask got stronger as the game got, got along, and also their line play on their third and fourth lines opening up opportunities, especially when Charlie McAvoy was able to get a goal in the third period. It was just a complete effort by the Bruins, and really – really a test for the Islanders in this series. I mean, they, they avoided playing the Bruins in 2019 and 2020 in the playoffs. This is their third consecutive year that they're in the playoffs. And it's going to be a real test against a seasoned team like Boston. Oh, absolutely. And the first two periods on Saturday night, I, I thought it was going to be like a lot of the games that we saw in the Washington series where 
it would end up in overtime and come down to one shot or one shift. Uh, but it, it really, I, I what I think the turning point in the game was on Saturday night was the um, the goal by David Pasternak uh, on the power play, which I believe was late in the, I want to say it was late in the second period or it was about midway through the second period, I, I believe, and, and and that was, to me, what the turning point of the game was. Even though um, Pollock, or Pellick, I believe, uh, yeah. would then he then tied the game. Uh, yeah, that was the second goal of the game, and that was within about a minute and a half of each other. Yeah, and so even though there was a quick goal to answer, I saw that as really, it, it was almost like you knew that the first line of the Bruins, which and people like to call the perfection line. But after that second Pasternak goal, what I saw was that the first line was having really strong success uh, on the, in the offensive zone, and they were making the passes they needed to make, and they weren't turning the puck over, which they had done in the Washington series early on in that series. So once Pasternak got a second goal, I, I, I sort of saw the game turn, even though the Islanders then went and tied it. It felt like they just that the first line had that momentum and that they were going to continue pressing, and, you know. And ultimately, Pasternak would get another goal, and you know, it was, re- it was really Charlie McAvoy's goal that that set off the um, the sparks later in the third period. But I I agree. I really saw that. I really saw that the early on in the game it was highly contested. It what there wasn't sort of a feeling out process. I believe they mentioned this on the NBC broadcast, but it seemed as if in other series there might have been like in the opening minutes a five to ten minute period uh, set, set sector of time where the teams would sort of establish what the game was going to look like. But there there was not that in the in this game one. It it looked like from the get go because of how familiar these teams were with each other over the course of the regular season that there wasn't a feeling out process that they just went right into it would you agree yeah I think it's like that also with the Islanders style of play they're not one of these teams unless they storm out of the gate like they did in game four in the first round where where they they establish tempo like that usually it's there is a feeling out process we've seen a lot of games where it's been one goal games or they score then the opponent scores then they score right back it's just it's that back and forth style it's also that defensive style that they want to be able to play, keep their opponents close, and then maybe get get a late goal in the third, and then or in overtime, and then close the game out. Yeah, I agree, and it seems like the the Bruins sort of play a similar style of game where if they're down a goal, they almost still play like they're like it's a tied game or like they have the lead. It does, and the Islanders, I saw that they sort of played the same way. They got the first goal, you know, the 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 goal by both. Bovillier, is that the right pronunciation? I yeah, so. yeah Bovillier had the first goal, yeah. and, that, and that line has really been productive for the Islanders thus far. Yeah, and it seemed like after Bovillier got that first goal, they continued to press. It, there was no, And the Bruins sort of did the same thing after, uh, even after McAvoy scored to give them the lead in the third period. So I think both teams sort of play that, uh, that style where they're not, you know, lines one through four – they're they're pressing and they're not just you know dumping and chasing and you know abandoning you know, the forecheck and, and they, they seem to get 
really strong zone entries is one thing I noticed too. And and you mentioned the style of play. Do you think that Barry Trotz and Bruce Cassidy have a similar coaching style in that regard where they're they're always going to play that physical game? Or do you think they, they are different in any way? I, th- I think I think it is similar in the physical game. I think the differences between the two is one thing that Cassie likes to do is he likes to attack, attack the net, be able to put as many shots on there. If they get a rebound, get a get a close shot in front, maybe it goes in. The Islanders are maybe a little bit more passive, maybe passing the puck a little bit more. Now, not not having the depth that they had earlier in the year, maybe causes that somewhat. So it's, there's maybe more of a defensive mindset, and I think there's more of a balanced mindset. I would say with Boston, also being able, like as mentioned, just limiting zone entry and just being able to be physical defensively like we've seen with McAvoy and like we've seen on their front lines to be able to do that. I think that that's where the similarities lie between the two is mostly defensively, but I think offensively, I think also because of the personnel that Boston has. And you look at their top line and also since the, since the addition of Taylor Hall, ha, you know, having some more depth and being able to lengthen things on that second line and then down to their third line, being able just to have that type of presence where you could score on any line and be able to, just give the opponent so many different looks they have to contend with. I think that's the difference between the two teams and the mindset. There is an aggressiveness, I would say, with Boston, with, with Cassie's style of play, but it's also, I think, a controlled aggression, not just throwing pucks and not just just taking chances just for the sake of it. There is a there's a mindset, there's a plan. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And, and I think one thing that, that Cassie does is he doesn't over and I, I see Trotz do this too. There's a there's a school of thought in the NHL now where it's it's like it's all about line matchups and they I feel as if some coaches will over uh, they'll overplay their hand with with the line changes and I think you know Laviolette did this in the Capitals Bruins series where you know he would he would hide certain players he would try and expose others. And it just it, it lacked cohesiveness. And what I see Trotz and Cassidy do that's similar is they don't obsess over the line changes that will naturally occur. You know, they're they're not looking to get their they're not looking to get their uh, fourth line uh, or excuse me their first line uh, chances against a fourth line all the time. They're they're really they're keeping their players fresh and not overemphasizing the line change. And I think that's helped them out. And you see that both teams aren't afraid to roll out their fourth line uh, against the other team's first line. I, I don't know. I don't have the stats exactly right in front of me, but it seemed like there was some times where, you know, Chris Wagner would be out there against Matt Barzell and vice versa. You know, you'd have, you'd have a lower line uh, forward from the, Islanders out there against the Bergeron line and, and it didn't seem to make too much of a difference early on in the game but that that's something I, I think would be uh, interesting to watch to see how they how they go about that because neither one of them are are, are too uh, are too concerned with the line matchups would you agree yeah I agree with that and also I think game to game that that they're keeping the same forward lines and the same defense pairs for the most part Maybe with the exception, you know, moving a guy on the third defense pair, moving some maybe a ladder forward, third, third or fourth, with the Wallstrom injury that the Islanders have now, Travis Ajak on the third line, so maybe you have something like that. But it's not, you know, game to game or shift to shift where they're constantly, you know, having different lines and different players working with one another and where there's no cohesion. Both teams want to have that cohesion. 
for the most part, they've been healthy, especially with Boston's sake. So they don't have to do that. And they have the depth to be able to execute the game plan. So I think that's why they try to keep that at same lines and just be able to have that's you know that same game plan and be able to execute it with the players they trust. Especially in playoff time, you don't want to make too many changes, even if you're down in the series or you're up in a series. You want to just be able to keep you know keep rolling with the guys that you have and be able to trust what you have, just like you have in the regular season. Yeah, I, and I'd agree. I think I think when when teams get into trouble in the postseason, and well, I I saw this a little bit when. You know, when Chloe Julian was here, was when they they try to roll the dice a little bit too much or press too many uh, press too many buttons, and it really does sort of water down the cohesiveness that you built that you may have built over the course of the regular season. And and you mentioned health, and you mentioned Oliver Wallstrom, and and um, and you know, and the subsequent uh, insertion of Zajac into the into the lineup. Um, obviously the. Islanders are also without their captain uh, Anders Lee. So, how, how much do you think that those uh, particular injuries are start will have an impact later on in the series against a team like Boston that can score? I think I think it's already having an impact. I think in a way, you know, not having Lee on that on that first line, the Islanders have not been as productive early in games or being able to really establish too much. You know, Lee Kamarov has struggled in that spot. You know, they've gotten some production from Jordan Eberle, but obviously they would like to get some more. They're putting Travis Ajak on that third line where Oliver Wallstrom was, and he was out of the lineup, actually a healthy scratch for about the last six or seven games for the Islanders. So it's taken him a while to get back going and being able to get back into a rhythm. So there are some changes. Kyle Palmieri they added during the trade deadline. He hasn't really produced. He's been moved down to the third line. So really it's just that second line of Beauvillier, Nelson, and Bailey that have really been getting them the production. Other than that, it's it's really just been really just having to piece things together. And Wallstrom, they miss his presence. He was starting to come into his own this year. He had 12 goals, 44 games. And I think what helped him is the all-divisional format, you know, just being able to see the same team over and over again and being able to develop a rhythm and really get a feel for the NHL. I think that does help some of the young players, especially in a shorter season, you know, getting him there and, you know, starting to develop. It took him a while to develop. The Islanders wanted to, you know, take their time to see where he could go and, it really seemed like he was starting to blossom and you know, hopefully he was going to have a chance in the playoffs, but then he got injured in the first round and now the Islanders have to scramble. Yeah, they, they certainly have had to do that. Um, and you mentioned, you mentioned Kyle Palmieri and, and sort of, you know, it, in the backdrop of this series, it's really been almost, you know, for lack of a cliche, like a tale of two acquisitions. Cause on one hand you have, Kyle Palmieri, who at the trade at the time of the trade, I thought, oh man, that's gonna that's tough because um, way back in uh, when the trade happened, the Islanders had really had the Bruins number um, in re- in in the season series, and they were still ahead of the Bruins in the standings. and And I remember thinking, well, they got Kyle Palmieri, and that's who everyone around here wanted to add. And then a lot of people around here were skeptical about trading for Taylor Hall um, because they wasn't sure, if, obviously, if he, he's going to be a flight risk uh, as a free agent, and also, you know, his his uh, reputation on some other teams wasn't exactly the brightest. And, and now you look at the the Bruins since adding Taylor Hall and the Islanders since adding Kyle Palmieri, and it's it's almost like one has 
flourished and the other has sort of stayed stagnant. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think it definitely is a fair assessment, but I, I do think it is a little bit unfair, I think, with Taylor Hall, the reputation that he did have, because you, you could look at it that he has a type of reputation, but you could look at the teams that he played for. He, he was in an Edmonton team that was not going anywhere pre-Connor McDavid, having all these first-round draft picks and early selections there, and just never nothing really came together. The only year that he really you know, led a team to the playoffs was the year he won the heart, which I think was, was 2017-18, when he had 39 goals, a huge season there. So he was never really in that winning culture. He went to Arizona, you know, as a rental last year. And so he was always expected to be that guy and, and to be the, be the focal point for all these different teams. And then when the losing came, he felt the frustration. And I remember one night I'm covering a game in New Jersey, and it was right before he gets traded to Arizona where where teams or where the fans, I should say, are booing him. Devil stuff for a tough loss. I think they, they allowed five goals in one night. And, media is asking him, you know, what do you think of the fans booing them? And he said, you know, fans don't come out. They don't support us. And that was pretty much that was pretty much it for him. He was out of New Jersey at that point. And I think, you know, going to a place like Boston, obviously, there's a tough media culture there. But the one thing in Boston is that you have you have Pasternak, you have Marshawn, you, you have on that team you know, players that have been there, Stanley Cup you know, caliber players that he does not have to be the focal point. He could just blend in and play his game. And I think some superstars thrive under that instead of just being the face of the team and you know, dealing with the wins and losses and having to face all that and feel like they have to elevate the team. And it's really just one guy on that, on that standpoint. With Kyle Paul Mary, I think the difference with him was he was on a New Jersey team that really just wasn't, wasn't that great either. Also was ironically teammates with Taylor Hall for a number of years there. And people really thought around the league, you know, one of the most underrated players that he would just come in. It was a similar style, you know, system, you know, with the Islanders and maybe maybe a winning culture. And it just for some reason, it, it just hasn't really happened for him. He's only he only had two goals in 17 games with New York, only four points total. It just it's just been an uphill battle for him. And I don't know if it's, you know, that it's taken him time to adjust or, you know, I'm not really sure what it is, but he just hasn't produced except for game one in the first round. It just hasn't really come come together for Palmieri, and I think that the Islanders expected a lot more out of him. And having Travis Ajak there, a former Lou Lamarillo guy, there towards the end of his career, maybe they thought the veteran presence would help there. But you know, in and out of the lineup hasn't really helped, and it's just really been a tale of two teams. Ironically, the Islanders they did want Taylor Hall, and they came close to getting him, but he ended up in Boston. Yeah, and I think the the Bruins were I think the Bruins were lucky to get him. And uh, I, I listened to a podcast the other day with reporters from the Hockey News, and that's a Canadian publication, and they do a fantastic job with coverage. Um, so I so I bet that I bet that the, their analysis that I'm about to share is pretty spot on too, much like yours. Um, but they, they were saying that you know if it was if it wasn't for his no wave clause or excuse me his no move clause, um, then Hall really wouldn't have had. <laughs> Obviously, wouldn't have had a choice where he was going, but I think, I think it was it was that Hall wanted for some reason to go to Boston, and maybe maybe it's because of what you alluded to, which is he wanted to go somewhere where it wasn't uh, it wasn't all on him, and and that's sort of a sports cliche that I think we use a lot, especially in in sports like the NFL or the NHL or the NBA. It's not really used much in baseball, but. 
for Taylor Hall, this is a guy who's from the time he was fifth, 14 or 15, he was probably the best player on, on every team he was ever on. And I, I think one of the things that happened with Taylor Hall was he just didn't have confidence. And I think coming and playing in Boston gave him confidence. I don't know if Kyle Palmieri's ever struggled with intangibles, but I think Taylor Hall has. So when he came here and he was introduced to this locker room, which, as you said, has experience all up and down the lineup, I think that really worked for him. And I think one of the things that was really his quote-unquote coming out party was his goal to tie the game in Game 2 against Washington in the, in the first round. Um, because if it wasn't for that goal, I don't know if the Bruins win that win that game. And if they don't win that game, I'm not sure they can get back in the series. I think the tide would have turned. So a lot of folks around here were looking at that goal as sort of the, the time in which Taylor Hall, be, quote-unquote, became a Bruin. And I think it's important for someone like Hall to fit in because, as you mentioned, he felt alienated by the fans. He felt alienated by teammates and some of the other places that he's gone. Uh, he didn't have a great supporting cast, and so now that's not on him. And with with Palmieri, I, I look at I look at this Islanders roster, and it's it's unsung heroes right after another. I mean, I follow the NHL pretty closely, and I had never really researched someone like Josh Bailey before his overtime goal uh last week against Pittsburgh or someone like uh someone even someone like Oliver Wallstrom who's one of the bright young players in the game if it, if not for him being from my home state I probably would not know who he was you know or if someone like Brock Nelson without him being you know an American born player that is on the rise I wouldn't have known who he was either he, they're just they seem to be a sort of a team, a tight-knit team that doesn't have, uh, you know, one particular superstar. But I think that might help them because I think it allows Trots to really let them play as a group. Uh, and would, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think, I think also another thing with that is, it's, I, I mentioned this when I wrote an article last week about Josh Bailey, is the chemistry that this team has. Many of these players have been together when Doug Waite was there as the head coach and maybe even before that, you know, it's coming out of the system the last, you know, 10 years or so. So it builds over time. And the Islanders, they kept this core together. And for the most part, they, they were able to win with that core and they were able to adapt, you know, going with Barry Trotz. And then they were able to bring in some other reinforcement. Another guy that you, that you didn't mention was John Gabriel Pajot. And just the way that he was able to have a breakout year last year, with the Ottawa Senators, was one of the big guys at the trading deadline. The Islanders, they signed him to a long-term deal after they traded for him. Had another solid season this year with 14 goals in 54 games, plus 10 in the plus-minus department. Just a really solid player in the third line. and He's also another contributor, a guy that, that could play two ways. And having those type of players that could get in there, pl play a two-way game, and be able to contribute, and just have that resiliency that they show constantly. And they're, ne they're almost never out of the game, and it's just really been something to see. It, just the question with them is, when will they be able to make the next step and be able to get to that Stanley Cup and be able to win an Eastern Conference Championship? They came two games short last year. Is this the year, or is it the year next year? But this core being together, I think, really helps. And when you have a deep series like that, you know, you have to rely on on team chemistry. And it's similar to Boston having that type of chemistry and 
it's it, it, it just fun to watch and see that with the Islanders. Oh, I told, and I, I totally agree. From afar, you looked at the Eastern Division at the beginning of the year, and a lot of people were saying Philadelphia. A lot of people, obviously, for good reason. When you have two of the biggest superstars in the game on Pittsburgh and Washington, respectively, we're looking at them for good reason. People were looking at the Bruins, but despite the fact that the Islanders made the Eastern Conference Finals and brought Tampa uh, to the to the brink uh, last last season they weren't getting a lot of respect and and similarly i i think that in the off season both the bruins and the islanders made those um strong adjustments to their team to improve chemistry and you you mentioned some of the acquisitions or the fact that some of the team was um still uh remained intact and, and i think the bruins took a similar approach you know after they lost in game seven at home uh, you know, a lot of people were thinking after the 2019 season that okay, maybe it's time to break it down and bring it, you know, build it back up, build it back up again. Um, they didn't do that. They had a strong push last year that ultimately fell short, just like New York. Um, but then this year, they they move on from Zdeno Chara, which a lot of people were uh, very uh, very critical of. And they go and they sign a guy in free agency like Craig Smith. And Craig Smith has been a player who's been uh, a huge part of that second line chemistry. And, you know, we talked about Taylor Hall earlier and Taylor Hall coming to the Bruins and being able to play on a second line uh, and not having to feel like he needs to be a first line player. Part of that is because he went and he was able to join David Krejci and Craig Smith, who were probably great players for Hall to be surrounded by because, much like I mentioned with the Islanders players, they're sort of unsung heroes who don't necessarily fall into the limelight all the time. And I think that's a huge thing that that shows itself in the playoffs, especially is, you know, you need to be a deep team. And I feel like both the Islanders and the Bruins are deep teams when it comes to the players that they know they can uh, intrinsically and intangibly rely on. Of course, the issue is Craig Smith suffered an injury, so whether or not he'll be a part of the series going forward is up is up in uh, up in question. But I just wanted to get your last thoughts on uh, any of the the depth of both teams before we moved on to goaltending. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's vital, and I think aside from Craig Smith, you know, the, the Bruins have been able to keep the, the, the depth in there, and they're able to add Hall, as we mentioned, they added Smith the year before, and then. Even when you look at their third line, Richie, Coyle, DeBrus, guys that could play a two-way game that could score goals and also be physical. And then you have Lazar and Wagner and Corrali. I mean, it's just a solid team all around. Not not the biggest names, but guys that are just solid contributors. I think with the Islanders, they have the depth. But when having but not having Wallstrom and not having Lee, I think, has affected this team in some ways. That they're not getting the production that they expected. Obviously, as, as I mentioned, Palmieri, just not getting the production from some of the reinforcements, I think that that's, that's been difficult for them and it's something that they're going to have to overcome. And facing a team with, with a town like Boston, it reminds me a lot of, of the Tampa Bay team that they that they faced last year that won the Stanley Cup. You know, that they get production on all four lines, guys that could play both offense and defense. And it's it's going to be difficult. But I think I, I think if they play their game and they're able to just, you know, just, just to be able to just hang in there and keep games close, they'll have an opportunity. But it's going to be a test for them. 
Yeah, and and we we talked a lot about what happened in game one, um, but game one really hung in the balance for a long time. And and the the test that you just alluded to was really I I saw that happen on both ends of the ice uh, with honestly with both goalies, uh, and and I think the the we talked earlier about how both teams were able to press and press and press and really respond well to that test that we just talked about. Um, but what have you seen from Ilya Sorokin that's different than what you saw from uh, from Varlamov or Semyon Varlamov earlier on in the season? What what have you noticed that's different about those two guys and how they react to the um, you know obvious and uh, sort of like uh, I'm looking I'm looking for the right word, but you know what I mean like the the yeah. inevitable the inevitable pushes that both offenses will make how have you seen um the difference between Sorokin and Varlamov in that regard I think with Sorokin he's got I think he's gotten a lot better over time I mean he's he's been pretty much in a platoon with Varlamov Varlamov struggled you know, towards the end of the year and then early in the playoff series against Pittsburgh but I saw a guy with Sorokin but there were times where he where I think game one he did start and he and there were times where he just wasn't as comfortable out there but he was just able, I think, just to adapt to the situation and, and make some adjustments. And over time, you know, he kept improving. He's actually, I think he was one of five guys to actually win their first four playoff starts since 2000, joining guys like Cam Ward and J.S. Jaguar. I don't know if he'll get to that point and accomplish what they did, but still to be able to win your first four playoff starts as a rookie is something pretty impressive. And he had a lot of hype and there's a lot of expectations early on, even predating Barry Trotz came in there when he was first in the Islanders organization. And it's taken him a long time to get to the NHL and come over from Russia. And this is the first year that he did. And last year he was actually, I think, I think it was by the bubble. It wasn't active, but was just able to just experience just what it was like to be, you know, in that playoff situation. And now he gets this, now he gets the opportunity to play in there. And Varlama being a seasoned veteran, you know, he's, He's been through this, but it's right now it just hasn't. It just there were times where it just hasn't really come together for him. And but the you Islanders know, are still committed to this platoon between the two of them with Sorokin and Varlamov. Many days, Trotz is not is non-committal about who who he's going to start until almost before game time. At least internally, he knows who he's going to start. But you know, for the media, just had just non-committal about who he's going to start and where he's going to go with them. But he seems confident in trusting both goaltenders. One a veteran and one a talented young rookie and. You know, it's not it's not a competition between the two. The two of them, you know, support each other and they get along. And so far, it's worked well for the Islanders. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it has just seeing how they were able to respond in that Pittsburgh series to you know, the, especially the er, early part of that series. And and I think you know, similarly up here uh, in our neck of the woods, we we seem to have an annual debate about Tukarask and about his poise and about his uh, ability to win you postseason games. And what I've seen and what I've always liked to go by is when you don't notice the goalie, that that means he's doing a damn well job. You know, like I, I think that the other night, one, one of the things I noticed about Sorokin uh, was that there was a lot of rebound chances. And... I think if he's able to clean up those rebound chances, then he could be really hard for the Bruins to score on later on in the series. Or hard, and then if the Islanders advance, 
hard on hard on anyone else, whether that be you know Toronto, Montreal, Tampa, Carolina, anyone anyone like that. I think those are all powerful offensive teams like the Bruins. But I think someone like Sorokin, if he can sort of limit the uh, mistakes that occur as a result of rebound chances, then he could he could really make a difference, much like he did in uh, in the first round series. I think with Rask also, he needs that validation to win that Stanley Cup, I think, to validate his career, I think, in Boston. Because when when he first got to the Bruins, Tim Thomas was the top goaltender, and then he was the backup the year they won the Stanley Cup. So he's never really won a Stanley Cup on his own, got to the game seven, two years ago against, against the St. Louis Blues. And I think there is a perception in that fan base about, what, about Rask being able to win in the playoffs. But he has won in the playoffs. He just hasn't won that Stanley Cup. It's a lot like what Henry Lundqvist with the Rangers so many years, you know, not getting there. And, you know, hopefully for Bruins fans, they hope that it won't end up like Lundqvist where he will get that opportunity to try to win a Stanley Cup. But he's been remarkably consistent. And it's just a question of just being able to just get there and be able to validate it. And with Elias Rogan, you mentioned about some of the rebound chances, but it's also the Islanders defense having to limit these opportunities. Too many times so far in this playoff year, they've been outshot. Letting opponents get into their zone, which which was unlike what they've done last year in the playoffs and the year before, or even in the regular season this year, where they played a trapping style and just limiting the chances, having a lot of zero zero games or one nothing or two to one games late in the third period. In this playoff year, they're giving up too many goals and just too many shots early, and they've really had to battle from behind many times. And that's something that does put a strain on your goaltender when you can't clear the puck in front of your in front of your netminder and get it out of there that you're leaving the rebounds exposed, somebody's going to put that in. And that's what's been happening many times in the Pittsburgh series and also in game one against Boston. Yeah, and, and I know I noticed that as I as I said very, very early on in the NBC broadcast was um you know very timely in pointing it out. And and one thing I'm just going back to what you said about about Tuka Rask is um you you're absolutely right. There is a perception and um a very delicate. It's a very delicate topic up here, especially with what happened uh, in the bubble last year, and and in you know, and then of the year before in Game Seven, you know, a lot of people put the Game Seven loss on him, and you know, and when, and I just don't think that that's uh, <laughs> that's a fair assumption. Um, but one thing that I have noticed about Rask is what, and this is where the you can really give credence to his critics is in some of those home elimination games. Through his career, uh, he he has he has a tendency to disappoint people, and whether it's his fault that they lose the game or not, some of the expectations are obviously unfair. You know, if you look through the years, you mentioned how Tim Thomas was a starting goalie in 2011. That's absolutely cor- correct, and he won the Conn Smythe for a reason. But the the year before, when when they blew the three-game to none lead in 2010 against the Island, excuse me, the um, Flyers, a lot of people forget that it was actually Tim Thomas who was the starting goaltender. Excuse me, it's actually Tuka Rask uh, that was the starting goaltender in that series. Uh, and then if you go through the years, they lost the game seven at home in 2012 against the Capitals. They lost the game six at home in the Stanley Cup Finals to the Chicago Blackhawks, in which Tukarask had a horrendous final minute. Uh, 2014, they lost the Game 7 at home to the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, and then, of course, you had uh, 2000, 
19 against the Blues uh, in Game 7 at home. So I think a lot of Bruins fans are scared uh, that if they were to play an elimination game, uh, what kind of Tukarask they're getting. Uh, but then on the other, but then on the other hand, there was a game six against Toronto a few years ago on the road where he he had a shutout, I believe. So you you really can get two uh, two Tukas for for lack of a better term. But uh, I I I think I think he's the kind of goalie where he's never going to have an awful game. He he might have a blunder. Uh, early in in a game that might make like you said make you play from behind, um, but he's not the kind of goalie who's going to lose a game for you by letting up five or six goals like you know like Roberto Luongo in 2011. He's not that kind. He's not going to have that sort of meltdown. Knock on wood. Um, and I and I don't think for that matter Sorokin's that sort of goaltender either. You know he's not going to have a Tristan Jari type. Uh, meltdown. I don't think those both of those guys seem very even keeled uh, for the most part. And I think the situation with Jari, it was a, it was a lot like how a pitcher in baseball. It seems like he's tipping his pitches. It seemed like once the Islanders figured out that they could score on him glove side, they kept going to that park that that part of the net, and they kept firing. And, they, and many times they were hitting, and the, and the Penguins really had really nowhere to go because Casey Smith, their backup got injured. They, they really had nowhere. Maxine Legacy was the only goaltender. He had limited action, but they go to off the bench. And so that limited them. But yeah, I mean, when you look at when you look at the Bruins with Tuka Rask, I think also it's another thing. It's also trying to measure up to what Tim Thomas accomplished. Obviously, it was brief when he was in Boston, but I think that's what the fans look at. That, you know, he won two Vezinas. He won a Stanley Cup. Won the Conn Smythe Trophy. Was in consideration for the Hart both years he won the Vezina. So it's like no matter what he does, unless he wins the Stanley Cup, they look at Tukarask. Okay, you know he's been good in Boston, but he, he's no Tim Thomas. And I think if that's unfair, is the comparison of Rask to Thomas. And you know when you look at the career that Rask has accomplished and how close he's got, it's just really a question of just being able to, if if or when he could end up winning a Stanley Cup. I think then the narrative and the perception will change with him. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It's this weird paradox between you know. Tim Thomas won a Stanley Cup. He won a Conn Smythe, uh, but he did it really. He had one good postseason uh, that a lot of people will look at, um, and then you go back and you look at the career that Tuukka Rask has had, um, and you say, "Wow, like yeah, there might be some playoff blunders in there." I think I attributed one of them to him. That was really to Thomas, but you, uh, the 2012 series, I believe might have been Thomas who was in that. But either way, you look back at the career that Tuka Rask had versus the, you know, even though Tim Thomas had a great postseason, Tuka Rask has really had a fantastic career uh, that, as you mentioned, is just lacking that one uh, over the hump. But we've seen people do it. I mean, t- hey, 2020, 2021, it could be the year of the, could be the year of the elder statesman uh, to get it done, and, and I think even though Rask isn't extremely old yet, uh, he's he's definitely a senior to Sorokin. He was a senior to Samsonov. He, if they move on, he will be uh, he he could be a senior to someone like Andre Vasilevsky. So he's definitely been in the league a long time, and for him. I think he'll he'll continue to have that as a monkey on his back 
until he's able to uh, move on. But but we'll I think we'll have to wait to the off season to decide whether it's fair fair or not. Um, lastly. Gershon, before I let you go, uh, I just want to get your thoughts on what 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 we might want to look for tonight in Game Two, uh, and for the rest of the series. I think I think the, really the rest of the series. I think for the Islanders, I think I mentioned it about limiting chances. I mean, just too too many shots on goal, and, and forty shots on goal they allowed. That's not going to get it done. They have to be able to just go back to play, playing a trapping style and just. Just limit the zone entry with the Bruins is going to be tough with so many different scores. And I think with the Boston Bruins, just keep up the pressure, be able to put pucks on the net, be able to play a solid defensive game and, and just limited chances for the Islanders. I think that those would be the keys for both series. And I think one thing that's going to be interesting that we, that we really didn't discuss, I think the crowd, I mean, how loud it was in Boston. It really felt like hockey was back there. And, Imagine, you know, in a situation if the Islanders win game two, going into the Nassau Coliseum in that small building, how loud things can be. That's going to be that's going to be an interesting factor. Or even if the Islanders are down 0-2, how the crowd plays into it. First time that you have almost full capacities in both these arenas after a, after a whole season, season and a half, where you didn't have any fans in the building. It's going to be interesting to see how the teams respond to that. Oh, I agree. I, I think the crowd has played a major factor on Saturday night, and there's no doubt it will play a factor tonight. Um, <laughs> I think this this Garden crowd will be a little more friendly than the one we saw last night. Uh, but I but I think that uh, that the the Bruins faithful will show up, and likewise, so will so will the blue and orange on on uh, Tuesday night, or excuse me, Wednesday night. One thing, in addition to the crowd that you mentioned, uh, is as I'll look at injuries. We talked about injuries earlier, earlier on in the program. Uh, I think the Craig Smith injury could shake up some of the cohesiveness that we talked about among the Bruins forwards. Um, but but we'll see how that um, how that uh, how that plays out. I think that's one thing I'll want to look for tonight in particular. Uh, and then later on in the series, I think I'll want to uh, I'll want to see if. If players like Charlie McAvoy or Patrice Bergeron, who, ha- who have uh, logged an incredible amount of ice time uh, over the last uh, series and a half, uh, will have will have uh, any signs of of fatigue or 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 really if the, if that will play a presence on the Islanders' side of the bench too. Um, I think I'll want to look at that. Uh, and then lastly, we'll see if um, we'll see if uh, Ilya Sorokin and uh, and Tuka Rask can uh, keep can keep uh, their teams in it without uh, without uh, any big mistakes. Um, and so that's what I see. Uh, do you have a pick? Do you want to make a pick for the rest of the series? It's completely okay if you don't. I, I know it's going to be a tight one, uh, but but I just wanted to give you that opportunity to make a pick for the rest of the series. Well, I, I think I think with the Islanders, if they're gonna have, if they're gonna have a chance to be able to get back to the series or be able to make it a long series, I think they need production. I would say from their first line, just not getting much out of Barzell, Eberle, and Komarov. I think that that's hurt them so far. And we mentioned about defensively, you know, that's really what it's going to hinge on is how the Islanders are going to be able to play defensively, what they're going to get out of their goaltending. But you know, I would I, would, I don't know if I'd make a pick, but I, I think I would expect I would expect a long series. When you look at the way the teams are matched up and how that could go and, how, and the styles of play and how similar they are, I think that this could be a deep series. It's just going to be a question of just the teams, you know, making the most of their opportunities and um, where the puck bounces. I mean, that's really the question with it. But I think it's going to. I think there has a potential to be a close and a deep series 
if everything goes according to plan. Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree here too. I think it's entirely possible where you know they could split in Boston, split in uh, split in New York, and then go back to Boston for you know a game five next weekend, and you know we'd be talking about potentially completely different topics than what we talked about today. That's how much can change in this series uh, and over the course, especially when you know when it's a tractor pull and it's a two week long. Uh, you know, a vet. There's a there's a lot that can happen uh, that can change the conversations, and and I and I agree. I agree. It's it it has the potential to go to go long, uh, and and really, I think no lead is safe. That's the that's the I, I'd say would be the last thing I would mention is no lead is safe, uh, and and I'll give you the final I'll give you the final word. Yeah, I mean, really, it's just it's it's no really no lead is safe, and it's just it's been back and forth, but. Also with the Boston series, the previous series when they faced the Capitals and with the Islanders of Pittsburgh, and it has the potential to be very similar here. And really to me, I think it's going to be a very exciting series, just seeing the disparity, the differences between the two teams and some of the similarities that we talked about, seeing how they play out. The Islanders have not faced Boston in the playoffs since the 80s, so it's really exciting to see something like that. And then and then maybe, as I mentioned, being a test for the Islanders, seeing where they stand as a franchise and where they're going seeing if they can match up to a team that was just in the Stanley Cup two years ago. It's going to be exciting to watch. I absolutely agree, and we'll tune in tonight. It will be on NBC. Uh, NBC is the last year of NBC coverage, so definitely enjoy it there. I don't know who will be on the call, but uh, we, we're, we'll have a, probably another late night of hockey here with a 7.30 p.m. puck drop that will probably be closer to 8 p.m. Eastern. Well, I wanted to... Thank you again for coming on the program. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? I know my listeners can certainly follow you on Twitter at Gersh Online, G-E-R-S-H Online uh, on Twitter. I know you're a great follow with a lot of uh, sports insight. But is there anything else you'd like to plug before I let you go? Yeah, if you want to check out my work and some of the hockey work, just check out thepuckauthority.com where we post about the NHL, the ECHL, and all different junior leagues. It's a great spot for hockey up and coming, so check it out. And you know, it's a good place just to follow some of the game and some of the, some young and talented writers that are coming out of there. So, thanks for having me on, Will, and I really enjoyed it. All right, thank you yourself. And there you have it, folks. That was my long-form hockey analysis about Bruins Islanders with Gershon Rabinowitz from the Puck Authority. I hope you all enjoyed that uh, long-form interview that we had together and some of the back-and-forth discussion we had about various topics. It was a lot of fun for me, and I'm so glad I was able to get reacquainted with him and talk Bruins Isles ahead of tonight's matchup. That matchup will air tonight on NBC Sports Network at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. I hope you all listen to this episode. It should be dropping right after 6 so you'll have plenty of time to listen to it prior to puck drop at 7.30. Otherwise, still fine if you listen to it the next day, of course. You'll never turn away a listener. And it will still uh, be valid given that a lot of the points that we talked about uh, were for the series at large and not just game two. So it would be fun if you would all uh, join in and listen to that as well. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Will Island and this is Home Field Advantage. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite provider, including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Home Field Advantage is produced and recorded by Will Highland 
under the umbrella of Sportland America. Home Field Advantage is an independent program, and the opinions shared in this program do not reflect those of any other company or entity.